0: And welcome to Madecast. This is Edmonton's design podcast, produced by Made, Edmonton's not for profit design society. Today and every other day, we acknowledge that we are situated on Treaty 6 territory. This podcast series is brought to you by Dialogue. Dialogue is an integrated design practice of architects, engineers, interior designers, urban planners, and landscape architects with decades of history in Edmonton. I'm your host, Cody Johnston.
1: And I'm your co-host, Stephanie Pollack.
0: So, Y, being WAI, Architecture Think Tank, is a planetary studio founded in Brussels in 2008 by Puerto Rican architect and theorist, Cruz Garcia, and French architect and poet, Natalie Frankowski. Why is one of their several platforms of public engagement that includes Beijing-based anti-profit art space, Intelligentsia Gallery, and the free and alternative education program and trade school, Loud Readers. Garcia and Frankowski develop and frequently offer international art and architecture workshops. Currently, they are assistant professors at the School of Architecture and Design at Virginia Tech, Uh, visiting lecturers at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. And Garcia and Frankowski uh, have formerly been visiting professors at Carnegie Mellon University. Uh, They've been Hyde Chairs of Excellence in Architecture at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And personally, uh, Natalie and Cruz are connected to me by their role as visiting teaching fellows at the School of Architecture at Taliesin.
1: We had a great discussion with Natalie and Cruz. They share their journey to China and the inception of the Intelligentsia Gallery, participating in a competition and realizing they were competitive in the international market, and what they've observed in people through living, teaching, and practicing around the world, and how education and critical thought has the power to create
0: change. This podcast episode is brought to you by Rockcliffe, Pierre Shiloh, Architects, HCMA Architecture and Design, Hodgson Schilf Evans Architects, and GEC Architecture.
1: Please sit back and enjoy our conversation with Natalie and Cruz.
0: So we're here today, Cruz Garcia and Natalie Frankowski of Why Think Tank. Yeah, I was lucky enough to... Uh, to be at the same school that they were teaching at, uh, never directly in, in classes with them, but uh, definitely took I took a couple of workshops with you guys, and uh, it changed how I think about uh, a lot of things actually. And I'll I'll still to this day defend collages at work, and I'll get into to yeah. you know combats with my bosses and stuff like that about you know render styles and realism and collages and and so yeah, you, you you've landed in my heart and my work. So <laughs> well done. Well done. <laughs> I guess to start off, let's introduce the folks to who you are. So, how you met, where you landed.
2: So, I'm Natalie. Uh, I'm French. So, I grew up in France.
3: But she was born in Scotland.
0: I was born in
2: Scotland. She always
3: forgets that part.
2: <laughs> no, but my accent is quite obvious. So, <laughs> people will assume more of a French part. But I studied in France and. Uh, I graduated from Paris La Villette in 2008, and then I went to Belgium where I met Cruz.
3: So I'm Cruz Garcia. Uh, I'm from uh, Rio Piedras, Puerto Rico. I was born in Puerto Rico and I studied my undergrad and my graduate studies in Puerto Rico. When I finished school, I uh, I went to Belgium for my first uh, sort of professional architectural experience and then I met Natalie there. And then two weeks, uh, two weeks after I arrived to Belgium to Brussels, Lehman, Lehman Brothers filed for bankruptcy, uh, and that was the crash of Wall Street of, two, of 2008. So I feel like everybody in 2020 can relate to what that means. But some years ago, that that's not, it's not really in people's memory, like what what crisis represents for somebody just getting out of school. So that was really important graduation yeah no, yeah and it was uh, it was like a welcome mm-hmm. to uh to europe not only so i feel like the economic sense was the least of the concerns even you know if i was broke in europe without the visa and you know and changing countries and so on but um i moved i moved we moved to holland after that experience we, we did a bunch of competitions and so on you know in the studio where we were and then i so said like uh, you know this is not for us so we started collaborating but then we need to find a job because i mean i'm literally broke and i i went to europe with a ticket to go but not to return because i didn't know when i was going to return uh so i wanted to see architecture you know and i wanted to like you know whatever you know learn about buildings and stuff like that in different cities um move to amsterdam uh, and this is where it gets uh funky in a way um I, I had a, like a really terrible experience when I was working there, like with the, with racist people and with, um, and with um, there was a guy that was like the precursor of Donald Trump. It's a uh, called that is a Dutch politician that made a, in 2008, the same year that I arrived there or 2009. He, he, he published this film, film if you want to call that garbage uh propaganda a propaganda piece called fitna that is a super anti-muslim propaganda so it, it kind of you could sense the sort of populism and the right-wing uh sort of attitude in, uh, and the xenophobia you know going on in in the netherlands and i got really sick of europe at some point and i was like you know i cannot take this shit anymore i came here for architecture i mean all of this is so unnecessary um Uh, And, uh, you know, I always forget that our problems were mostly brought from Europe. Right. But I I was leaving them there firsthand. Right. So (laughs) uh, uh, I was like, I'm sick of this. And I told Natalie, you know, like I'm leaving this place and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go to China. So if you want to come, you know, let's go to China. And then we like went to France for some time and then. I remember your parents gave us the money to buy the tickets because uh, as I said, I was already broke because I spent all the money I had when I arrived to Europe. Our first job didn't pay us any salary also, which is, uh, I don't know if you can call it a job, but, um, at least we met each other. So something positive came, came out of that. Right. <laughs> I will give credit to the institution, but to, to life. Right. Uh, then I moved to China. Uh, then, we arrived, right? Like the cultural shock, the scale of the thing. It was insane. The first day we arrived, we decided. So we didn't have much contacts there, but uh, Natalie had a friend from the school and we were staying in her apartment. So at least we could figure out, you know, where to stay and, and so on. Uh, and we went walking, trying to go to Tiananmen and we see in the map uh, several blocks away. We walked for like three hours, didn't go anywhere. It was like, holy shit, this is like, what's wrong with this it was all like kind of polluted the air so you couldn't see too much it was like really like a really grime okay. cultural shock okay. it was not a beautiful day to uh-huh. arrive to beijing
2: it was interesting too because it was the anniversary
3: yeah it was near the near the, the it was not in the in, in the, the in the week of the of the anniversary of the communist party or the birth of china we arrived in october uh, but it was near that so it was everything was preparing, getting close, you know, there was not much things but open. But the
2: city was quite empty. Too. Yeah, it was, like a, it was a kind really of eerie, of futuristic, of a, futuristic
3: of dystopia, whatever, you know. Uh, then my first job, I mean, I'm, I'm making a long introduction, <laughs> but I wanted to just uh, talk about this, right? Um, my first job was awful, and I, I said I made the worst mistake of my life coming here and bringing this uh, French lady I just met, <laughs> you know, and we're working together, <laughs> and i like... Make her come to China, and I hate this uh, job that I had. That the guy was awful, and he he promised I was gonna do my visa. lied to me. Was taking half of my salary, and I was like, he's a famous guy now, like famous, you know, quote unquote, and powerful guy in uh, architectural circles in China. But he's terrible. I think he's a terrible human being too. So I said, like, holy shit, I want to leave this place, but I need to finish the month because I need a salary because I have no money, right? So I need to like hustle my way, uh, you know, like you know, like stay quiet. I mean, I cannot do that, but, you know, get into as little fights and arguments as I can. There was uh, some colleagues that had some bullying culture that they learned from other studios, like OMA and stuff like that. And they were trying to use it on me. I don't know why in architecture studio, somebody would pick on me, but this guy was trying to pick on me and it didn't go well for him. Um, but at the end I was like, I'm leaving this place. So then, Natalie have seen in an exhibition in China, in France, this an exhibition about Chinese studios, and there were some. And there was one that looked interesting, and it's like you know maybe this is a place where I don't know if they they would like somebody of my skills because uh, I mean they're building some beautiful architecture in Tibet and so on. But but you know I I hate this place, so I need to find a job, right? Um, and then I apply, and they did all this really complex uh, series of interviews and so on, end up being like one of our most imp- my. My most important mentors in my life, Janke, uh, sure. in standard architecture. You know, later on, I was a partner associate in the studio. He was really supportive of our projects. Uh, so many years later, we we were in Beijing, right? Like doing our projects, doing exhibitions and so on. We got finalists to do um, our um, the. This is crazy. Well, so it was the largest museum in Russia in Moscow. It it, it was the biggest museum, and they did a competition with half portfolio and uh, five people five studios were gonna choose to be chosen through portfolios and five were gonna be chosen through a project and we applied as a project and then we got in the final so there were like four russian studios by by project and us and then five really kind of important studios like nieto sobejano steven hall um uh, aravena Offiscars Ten gears, David Van Sevaden, fifty-one and four E, and Hagen Hennegan Peng, and we were like, great, you know, we flew twice oh. to Moscow. They gave us like, I think we earned something like like fifty thousand dollars or something like that, which is a lot of money, right, for for like a studio of two people. And we're like, you know, with this, we can like you know, it shows that at least we have the skills to compete with these people, right? At the end, it was politics, like everybody told me. And so they gave the project to somebody that did a tower. They couldn't build uh, it eventually because it was too expensive and so on. But, and we came back destroyed emotionally because like, holy shit, that was the big chance and we lost it, right? Uh, everybody gets paid the same, but we still didn't got the project, right? So in that heartbreak, I was like, I'm going to retire, move to the countryside, raise some chicken, you know?
0: Yeah. When when did you so the you were working at a, a firm in China yeah and then and then you must have stopped that at some point but where was Natalie working at the same firm as you or was it different firms no she was she was uh,
3: she, Stephen Hall, it was a actually. good
0: mentor but things didn't work out like how did that how did you stop working for the guy that you loved
3: yeah so that's where I was going there And so it's a long story sorry but I, I cannot miss details because then <laughs> it's like it's gaps right so these gaps are big uh, and sorry to make this really on why like winding uh, sort of uh, story it's but, okay it's wild. So that, Natalie was working for Stephen Hall and they have applied to the portfolio through New York. And we didn't know, right. We made a project. So we actually put labor. They were in the final two. Right. So we were competing against each other. So we're like, Natalie wrote to them saying like, you know, we are in the final against you. So I'll step down for this. It's fine. Uh, I was like, you know, in the other studio, my boss is super supportive. So whatever, you know, congratulations, we will support you for whatever you need. Uh, So the model maker help us make the model and whatever. Uh, we go to Russia, come back, destroyed, I lost. You know, like he had told me already that was impossible almost to win the competition, but you always have hope,
2: right? Um, I mean, it was already when we were presented uh, the, in Moscow, when it was like a final round, it was a little suspicious because, because they were like, applauding to us. Jerry was like, applauding, why the fuck are you applauding? We were starting to present because we were like kind of a the youngest,
3: you know, like the smallest the studio. Office, like, you smaller smaller it here. Office, we
2: made it here. Good job. We're we competing like, against like offices of like 30, <laughs>
3: But to be honest, they made a mistake and let me in at some point at the end. And I saw all the panels and I could tell that we were, you know, whatever we did was as good as whatever thing that could have won. Right. (laughs) And some of the some of the experts of the museums, they came to us and tell us, I gave you all the points, but I don't I don't have the power. Right. I believe that you had really the because we were proposing to do a program that, that was really public. It was like a museum really for people. But then what, so this links to when we return to Beijing, we're like destroy and whatever. But it's like we, th- we thought so much about art and what it can do as a potential project that we decided what happens if we do something like that program, but not, you know, uh, 52,000 square meters, but whatever we can find in Beijing, right? In the center of the city. So we call an agent and say like a real estate agent, and say, can you find us a room with no windows? With a high ceiling and she was like in the, why, in the center of the city why would you want such a thing like who lives in that no no like we want just to create some art space so we said like oh she found us a room and we're like this is perfect you know, <laughs> it has like three walls high ceiling so let's turn this into a gallery let's make one experimental exhibition with our own work we've been painting for like two years yeah, two years in secret, like." and not showing any work anywhere and whatever, like making collages and painting, like oil painting, all the house was full of oil paint everywhere, right? Uh, and we're painting all these axons and paintings and shapes and whatever. And and it was impossible to approach the galleries in China because we're not Chinese and they, they have a really strong market for our Chinese artists. You know, international people will come there to buy Chinese works. They don't want like Puerto Rican random dude and a French woman making work in China, right? That's not what the West market wants. That's not either what the local market wants either. Like we're like, nobody wants us in a way. So we said like, let's open this, let's make an exhibition with our own work. So if it fails, we just turn the gallery into our studio and we just work there and do some projects and so on. Right. Uh, Still like suffering from the loss of of Moscow. Uh, We made the first exhibition. Some people come. Everybody's like, wow, what is this? You know, like what concept is this? Like uh, the, the press release is really interesting and so on called Intelligencia Gallery. One of our friend architects, you know, former colleagues, she's an amazing writer in Chinese. So all the translations of the text of the gallery were amazing. We were using all of our friends, you know, uh, Guido Tesio, you know, from Italy and stuff like that, that are into art and architecture to write mm-hmm. the, the <laughs> pieces for the catalogs. So it became this like, so first exhibition was cool. And after that we started, okay, so now from now on, Every month, we're going to do one exhibition, a group exhibition, always international, always global, like Chinese artists, but also people in Africa or whatever. And we're going to fund it. And if people buy the works, they're going to take 100% the whatever it is. We take no commission. So it's like an anti-capitalist sort of sure. thing. Uh, yeah. We start making this. It, it goes super crazy. Like people will come Sometimes We will have 100 people in 18 square meters. Like crazy. Like pack. <laughs> uh, a bunch of galleries start opening around the neighborhood where we were at some point there were like 12 of them uh, all the media's coming doing interviews wow. nobody knows that we are architects by that by that time like in the art circles we're like the curator artist, whatever whatever right so we created some sort of alter ego that uh. was not related to architecture but we were inviting architects to collaborate all of our friends were coming to the gallery uh in that process you know chicago biennale happens they invite us to go to china to to chicago to show uh sarah her dad was the curator she came to beijing to meet to for something with the city of chicago but she wrote to us hey you know i'm here you know it would like great to meet Ah, come to our gallery she didn't know we had a gallery so when she saw it she was like holy shit these people are not only making all these crazy collages and all that they're running this crazy thing that nobody knows, you know, I mean, nobody knows outside of China, but that is really like, it was like a really special program, right? Like a life-changing program. Made so many friends of many different disciplines, things keep happening. And then Betsky is curating the Shenzhen Biennale uh, in, in Hong Kong and Shenzhen. Uh, some people invited us to go there to talk about their projects, some Chinese studio that we went there basically to troll them. And in that process of trolling them, in the presentation, Adam was laughing, and I remember that Adam had written a review about something we wrote, our theory of form, some years uh. before. He didn't know who we were, and he was kind of making fun of us. You know, he was saying like, "Hardcoreism remains soft, and so and so. You know, it's great <laughs> to see these things popping out on the internet. They're not so popular like the cats on the internet, but they're doing okay." Blah blah. blah. I remember that he said that more or less. Uh, and then I remember that he saw us presenting, and he said, "Hey, like." I just became the dean of this school where the students live in the desert. And, you know, it was the home of primary, right? And we we're like, sounds like a bunch of hippies to me. But he told us, like, it would be great to have you as a, as a, to come and do a lecture. And we're like, fine, you know, we go whatever you want, you know, like, just pay us the ticket and we'll be there. Then he wrote to us, he left, right? And he sent like, a, I don't know, some weeks later saying, like, hey, actually... We have this program of visiting teaching fellows. Would you be interested in doing this? We did the interview and actually none of the people in the interview wanted to hire us apparently only Aaron. Uh, And I think that they forgot to send us the email to tell us that we didn't pass the interview. That's how it went. That's, that's, I think how it goes. Right. So I wrote an email saying like, Hey Aaron, I never heard back from you. And he said like, Ah, yeah. You know, we wanted to have, I really would like to have you here because I'm not convinced with anybody else that applied, but the rest of the committee is not sure about you because you're too young and so on. And we're like, Hey, we have experience teaching. Uh, Give me some contacts. So we get some contacts of the people that we have done workshops and have taught before. And then he said like, okay, this is good enough. You know, will you come for six months? And we're like, great. You know, we leave the gallery running, leave our rabbits in the apartment fly to Wisconsin ah, I'm Ponyo, like, what the hell
0: eh? is this? Ponyo? <laughs> <laughs> Ponyo, yes. Yeah, Ponyo, Ponyo and, Ponyo I, you Lugada, know, and yeah, yeah. Blinky
3: and Pasha, and Pasha. <laughs> were in the apartment, right? So I had some friends, amazing friends that took care of our rabbits for a year where we were out. Once we arrived to, to Taliesin in Wisconsin, like wake up, literally Aaron drew, d- drove us on the night. We didn't see anything. We just fly from Beijing, right? Like arrive at night. Aaron drives, you know, in the woods, like shoo, super fast, I arrive in the night, I wake, I, I remember I bang my head with one of those beams because uh, Frank Ray Wright was a midjet. so uh, all the beams are really low, and I remember the first night, I bang my head and I start cussing his name, fucking Frank Ray Wright, whatever, you know, the thing is like, I'm bleeding, and I'm like, go to bed, wake up, open the door, and he's like, what the hell is this, there's no people here, right, and then first thing Adam tells tell us once we arrive is like, you stay in the full year, right? And we're like, holy shit, you should have told me before. We're, <coughs> we're paying rent of the gallery, paying rent of the other thing, right? And after that, you're not aliasing. After that, we got invited to go to uh, University of Nebraska-Lincoln, supposed to be there for a year, ended up being two. They made us chair for two years, then Carnegie Mellon. And now we're here in Virginia Tech. So that's pretty much like a loopy uh, explanation of how do we
0: did you have a Did you have a good first night's sleep in Chalhia's in the middle of nowhere versus like the loud Beijing or was it stressful?
2: I love
3: people and I love noise. <laughs> and, like... It
2: was really because the night before so we were like partying with our friends to say goodbye. So it was like maybe three or four, you know, in the morning. We were going in the street. The restaurant were still open because we were living like in near the a very right? famous restaurant uh, street. So there's always people outside, like it's noisy, it's Beijing, there's a lot of people. And then yeah, it, it was really surreal to just, I just remember also like the, the fog, like waking up and seeing just the, the fields and the fog and the silence. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it was really surreal. It was really serious. It, it took us some days to, to to adapt a little bit to the environment. It was
3: really shocking, you know, and I'm not really <laughs> natural. Nature for me is really unnatural. I never lived in such a place so it was you remember you used to make fun of us you know making like a, because once we were walking from the school to the to the to where we live in the barn that is like it takes like eight minutes walking even if he's in front of it because of the heels and whatever mm-hmm. and one night we were walking and we start hitting all these coyotes and i was gonna die of a heart attack i thought we were gonna get eaten by wolves i never heard you know what you know it's just like howling stuff around us and it's super dark and we're like we don't know in which direction to run, or if we should run, or lie dead, or pretend that you're a stick or something. Uh, and then, uh, then we we went to the to the apartment. Finally, we made it and start googling sounds in the in the in the woods of Wisconsin. And that we figure out that it was coyotes. And I remember that once we were walking at night and you start making noises and we're like, "Oh shit, they're coming again." <laughs> so I don't remember about the sleep, but I remember about the fear I had.
0: The only thing is you like. You see, I'll remember. i always remember. You see the Milky Way like every night there, which you don't see anywhere. And you just get totally tripped out by the coyotes and the animals because of the all the geography around there. It's just like nothing makes any sense. It's such a weird geography yeah. that it's even yeah. for somebody who like you know I'm, we're from Canada, so like nature is part of who we are, right? Like in in theory. Yeah. Yeah, we got. Some yeah, like- the
3: sound the, the sound travel in such a weird way. You can never tell where it was coming from. Yeah. Spooky. And for somebody that grew up in concrete and, and pavement, that's scary as hell, you know? Yeah, um, yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> Shit. I mean, it was quite beautiful. It was beautiful, beautiful
3: but scary. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> one weekend Aaron took all of you to Chicago and we st- we made a mistake to stay in the school alone. And I regretted it every single second I was there. I was like, if somebody like taps me in the shoulder, I'm dying of a heart attack here. <laughs> I can uh, like always looking back and you're just like, what, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. Wood <laughs> the wood cracking. Like, e, e, it's like a
0: horror movie. Do you think the gallery, as you guys described it, could have happened
3: anywhere other than China? No. No. Not, no. I mean, not even, I don't think it can happen again in Beijing. Well, COVID aside. No, no. But. I don't think it can happen as it happened. I don't even think it can happen in Beijing right now. Without wow. COVID. Why is that? Right? First... It was really early after the Olympics like the infrastructure of culture was not set yet there were there was not a I don't think there was a single museum of modern or contemporary art in China with a collection yet uh, a lot of the galleries were commercial were in this in the outskirts and there was the government was still not uh, sort of like controlling so much of what was happening in the hutongs. That's where we were. Hutongs are these uh, courtyard houses in the center of the city. Uh, Right now, I heard from friends that all that changed because of the authorities, how they're engaging with it. And um, also it needed, so it needed us at that time period too. We needed to be in our twenties full of energy and not knowing what we were doing at all to be able to pull it off because it was so much labor involved. Like you had to have a, you know, I was almost working 24 seven on that and I was getting no pay for it. There was no money coming in. You know, sometimes we get, I sell a work of us, you know, if it's our work, we get money because it's our work or we have some friends that were throwing us some cash saying like, you're completely insane. I like your project take, you know, like, so you don't die of hunger. <laughs> so uh, it was like that. But um, also, so we could do things like, for example, get amazingly important artists in China working with us that were super open for this. And I cannot imagine any other place where there would be so many people in, a, in such a small space with so much power, like cultural power. They will be willing to do it for free. I literally went to. I remember. I always remember. I bike like seven miles or eight miles to the studio of Wang Le, That is like a really important Chinese artist. Uh, and he he was cool with the gallery. Said so like, I want to be in the show. He gave me a painting. Probably that thing cost at least like a, like eighty thousand uh, dollars. And he wrapped it up in tape. And I, I and he there was tape and plastic and I hung it on my neck and I biked the seven miles back with that thing hanging there. Right. Like, so the level of not really caring, you know, they like the indifference for the monetary value stuff and the care for the cultural project was so intense. I, I, I don't imagine that happening. Right. Because I, it was not only underground artists. These people were like commercially successful artists working together with a bunch of no nobodies you know like us and whatever and we will do group shows with an artist that it was the first uh, i don't know like a polish artist that was the first show that ever done in in their life that we found the work somehow right or somebody recommended um so all those conditions the fact also that beijing because you have to go through a process of uh, the bureaucracy you know worse than in other places, right? Because it's it's a, it's a communist country with certain type of rules. It creates an alternative to that, which means that people don't care so much about paperwork because you know that the paperwork will be impossible, right? So we could have an institution that was never officially registered and be legitimate in the eyes of everybody, in the eyes of the media, in the eyes of the artists, in the eyes of other galleries that have all the paperwork. You see what I mean? Like doing that, pulling that off in New York or in London, that is a, places that I can imagine has Berlin that had that con- concentration of people, maybe is different. Also, we could produce things for cheap. Like we will get artists to send us files of, of, uh, of photos and we could get them framed and printed in amazing paper, right? Uh, using our own resources, I will bike three miles to the shops across the museum, Right. And get all those things done you know in two days, perfect you know um, so there were so many things coming together uh, that allow us also to have a really quick turn turner turn around. you know work in collaboration with galleries so the the scale the timing the economic side the material side, the support of the people right of of the community of of artists and and architects and designers and 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 the people you know in the sort of cree. I don't know. It's like the alternative scene. It was pretty intense and they were all around those places. Right. So uh, we have artists that even flew, you know, from Moscow to come to the shows, you know, that was the level. It was like, because it was an opportunity also to come to Beijing. Right. Uh, So people were like, yeah, you know, like great. that you want to show our our, our project in an 18 square meter gallery. We're going to fly there. We're like, really? Are you going to fly there? So we had to take them to the restaurant. So everybody made so many friends. Right. And not only us people that we still work with today. So it is, you know, like super remarkable in that sense.
2: I think, again, yeah, it was a time, but it became like a place where especially when we had the openings where it was just like people wanting to come together and meet other people and talk. So we had like space for discussion. Artists could present their work and all this. And I feel like Again, like, because of a point in time, there was not so many other options in Beijing for that. So I think, like, even for the, the artists who have been practicing, you know, for many years. Yeah, and there, were successful,
3: you know, in the, what they, they do. They never
2: had the opportunity just to, to, to talk about to their talk stuff. about the, the, the work or just, like, you know, exchange with, about different topics. Not for selling, right? Like, like being more there. Like, right, like for... Really
3: and... And we did, like, I remember, like, we, we invited a curator. I mean, he's a friend. I wanted to kill him during the process, but he was a friend. Like, where I, we invited uh, Xia Yanguo and said, like, hey, Shia, you want to do a show in the gallery? Say ah, yeah, yeah, I have a great idea. Let's do 30 solo shows in 30 days. And I'm like, okay, sounds good. Yeah. And then every single day, press release, every single day, media some were like drilling the wall create a mess we you know fix some the wall, some of them burning paper and the neighbor got pissed with me of course you know like the the foreigner like i want to kill you you know like uh, we we had to do two lectures in europe we flew to europe and we had to reply to all the emails as this was it was just like
2: because completely crazy. so we were doing like catalogs text because we because we're serious really you know important to like to treat every exhibition the same, so we had to document, you know, the space. So we were doing everything. So of course, we were painting the walls, fixing the wall, doing the installation, printing if we needed to print, and then uh, have a catalog ready. Invite different people to contribute to the catalog because also we all the
3: writers to have nobody gets paid because there's no money.
2: Content. And then document also every exhibition yeah. the same way and we will port get opening, amazing
3: scholars and writers writing for that right like poets and stuff you know all around the world you know in the US in Europe because it was the project right uh, nobody cares if there's money involved at that point it is like we are all somehow doing this crazy thing together and let's see how we can, how long we can pull it off right so that that, that that's pretty much. I think it's a really unique moment in time you know uh, started in 2014 because we lost that competition in moscow right so it was like all related <laughs>
0: yeah yeah it's almost like the like the informal underground nature of it was like half yeah. or most of the attraction
3: right like but it was really formal yeah right it was always in mainstream media oh, yeah it's in our forum it was in the, in the, in the mainstream magazines. It was featured. We, we had the, the, when we were now in France, we were counting. It was featured over 20 times in the city magazines in, the, in a span of three years. Like literally, like I don't, I cannot think of other stuff that would do that. Right. Uh, everybody knew about it. Literally I will, you know, and this sounds kind of crazy. I will walk into places and people, I will hear people in Chinese saying, ah, that's the guy of intelligentsia. And I never met them before. Right. So it was, a, I mean, also, it's easy kind of spotting me in, in, in Beijing, too. But still, you know, it was still this sort of um, uh, like it was a condition of something that became legitimate. Right. Even if it was uh, in, on paper, not really. Right. Um, so it was not really underground. It was pretty like everybody knew what it was in a way. Right. Yeah.
1: yeah. You've lived in many different places and you've experienced many different cultures. So how how does that impact you? How does that impact your work? How does that impact how you teach? Yeah.
3: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, it's everything because it is what we are as people. Also, it's how we see the world and how we see places, right? Like, um, it's really difficult, yeah, for for us to think about. Ideas of exception, exceptionalism, for example, I mean, talking about the U.S. particularly, right, like the, where sometimes because people don't know other places, they think that they are unique at something. It is impossible for us to see the world like that. We see so many similarities, especially among young people all around, right? Um, we also see the same struggles, like, you know, struggles with, uh, with capitalism, with the environment, all these, all these questions, you know, like with the heteropatriarchy, you know, all the, all the questions, that are urgent, are pretty urgent everywhere we've been to, right? Um, so I think that's really also interesting that when we talk about intersectionalism, it's not only with the topics like, you know, like race, gender, class, but it's also with the ideas that we have of the nation state, right? With the ideas of a, of a land occupation, with who are the people that are there. Uh, and, you know, what Achille Bembe talks about, uh, the who who thinks that owns the planet and what do we do with the people that don't have a stake on it, right? Like all, all that precarity and risk uh, and all that, that's really, that's really part of the discourses that we are interested in. It also forces us to engage with everything in, with that perspective. So there's never one angle in the philosophies we use or, or the things that we're reading, right? Like it, we try to be as, as, uh, as open as we can in the sense of knowing that we're missing discourses and that we're missing positions that are critical to understand the, the things that are urgent today. Uh, so in, in, in that regard, it is fundamentally who we are in one, on one side. And on the other, it is really important in the way we approach pedagogy, right? As a, um, as a project, as a project that yeah. is, as a project of, of solidarity with those ideas and with those struggles and with people, right? With a, an idea that we are not anywhere to try to impart some instruction or to give a path, but rather to exchange knowledge, right. And to figure out how we can make, you know, networks of solidarity work for all of us.
2: And collaboration is really like in the center of our practices, many practices. So we, we have also along the way met, you know, uh, people who really influence how we work and we work with them. And I think also during like all the process of moving around, it's, uh, as as cruz mentioned it's it's really about an exchange because um I think we you know we never try to have a reading on on the context but yeah. more about understanding you know what is there and thanks to this kind of networks that could be created around us to to try also to understand what kind of knowledge was already there and learn from the from the place in many different ways but
3: yeah perhaps that's why also we lasted like we lived seven years in Beijing in the same apartment and it would have been longer, right? If Adam doesn't invite us to, to, and I don't know many people that can be in the same place like that. Like it was not easy, but also it was easier perhaps because we don't have expectations about places. Right. And we were open to, to, you know, see what happens and, 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 um, and try to learn, you know, and identify with the people. Right. So many friends, Sometimes we didn't even speak the same language. You know, Pony, I always remember that Ponyo were rabbits, right? It was a gift on the, of the lady that sells the vegetables, right? And she she liked me a lot and she was very nice to me always. And one day she she saw me with my other rabbit and then brought me this brown rabbit from a box and gave it to me. And I always remember, <laughs> like, this is what life is about, right? Like, she totally got what was our way of living and she, she wanted to bring something to us. And it, it will always stay with, with us, right? And that's what I feel, right? It's not only with the people in the museum or in the, in, the, in the studio, but, you know, life, you know, that it was you live life wherever you are. And, that, and, and then good things may happen. Luckily, you know, if you if you're lucky enough.
0: <laughs> there's there's a uh, there's a lot of avenues to take a lot of this discussion. But, um, you know, one thing that that um, bugs me about Edmonton and, and like, you know, I'm throwing you guys in the deep end here. You don't know Edmonton at all. Have you guys been to Canada by chance?
3: Never.
0: Ah, you haven't been invited yeah. yet. You need, we need a
3: we need a yeah, best to be up here to call you. To kind of- all
0: right, all right. Well, you don't want to come right now. It's like minus thirty outside. So. <laughs>
3: no, definitely not in the winter. <laughs> yeah.
0: um, so our city, our city's is a million people, and and there's not really a, a larger city any farther north than than Edmonton. Um, so it's it's kind of uniquely situated, you know, for all the reasons, social, political. Uh, those kinds of things like the gold rush. We were a big hub for that kind of thing. So we're a very boom and bust oil is a big thing here, blah, blah, blah. So kind of a blue collar DIY do it yourself area. And we had an architecture school like a hundred years ago, like in uh, someone's going to lambast me for getting the dates wrong, but you know, our university was founded. Our city was founded 110, 115 years ago. And we had a university shortly after that in the twenties and thirties, I believe. And then it, and then it stopped, but we don't have an architecture school here. Uh, we have a couple of design schools. Uh, you know, we have the like University of Alberta, and there's a there's a faculty of design. So it pumps out a lot of great industrial designers, uh, artists, and things like that. But there's no school of architecture. And I was wondering, what you think, architecture schools, how they impact a city, or how how a city can impact an architecture school? Because I'm thinking that I'm thinking that we need one. We have like an online version, but I would really like to see an architecture school in Edmonton for me i want to i want like the taliesin model i want like and because we're a blue collar lots of trucks lots of people building stuff i think it could do well with building and, and that could be our expertise but
3: yeah, but you cannot sleep outdoors you'll die <laughs> exactly exactly so architecture becomes then more important <laughs> <laughs> so you cannot make Arizona Taliesin. maybe wisconsin taliesin um,
0: wisconsin winter yeah but what do you think what do you think an architecture
3: school has like
0: what do you think their impact is on the city and do you think it's important
3: I mean, that's a really good question. question. I think it depends on the architecture school and depends on the city. Uh, I think some architecture schools have no impact on the city. Um, Mm. I feel some architecture schools schools have bad influence in some cities. Um, I am having a hard time thinking about what architecture schools have a good impact on the city. Actually, now that you say that.
0: Mm. I think of like rural studio. You know, I think of something like Mockbee.
3: Yeah, that's more like a design build type of thing. That's part of a bigger university. Those things could work. I'm a bit skeptical of them too, right? Because I'm always skeptical about what are the what what is there for the people? Because I know what is there for the university, right? They're gonna give give some credibility. They're gonna look like they are investing in the communities, but I don't know if it's real investment that they're getting, right? So. Right. I, I am suspicious of the institutions, but ideally an architecture school, I don't know if they exist in the way that I'm imagining them, but they could educate people or, or be spaces where we critically think about our relationship to buildings and the environment, right? So I would put it like that.
0: Oh yeah. I do not know, I know you guys were involved in, I'm kind of jumping around a little bit, but I know you were, you were, not really involved in the closing of Taliesin. That sounds like you were the cause of it, but...
3: <laughs> not responsible um, at all.
0: <laughs> what do you have, have any opinions about that? I mean, because that's, yeah. that's a cultural institution that yeah. um, got shut down by capitalism, more or less. Yeah, of course. So. Yeah,
3: I mean, that, and that's the thing, right? Like the, the problem is neoliber, neoliber, neoliberalism in education when we think that we are going to get... So, and this is the question about education, going back to what you were talking about, right? Mm-hmm. When we think we're going to get something out of education, there's a problem already. Right. Education is education. Right. We are there to make people sensible, to understand, to ask difficult questions, to reflect on the things that have been done wrong and try to fix that if it's possible to imagine better worlds together. That's the role of education. Right. But when we expect that education is going to bring us money, that is going to bring us some social stability that when we when we see it that's the neoliberal model of education right when you educate people to supply labor to a machine that's that's neoliberalism right you don't produce critical thinkers you produce workers and there's nothing wrong with workers but we know how workers are treated right that's the whole point right they don't want workers to emancipate the world they want workers to supply the labor that is going to generate value for somebody else right uh, or some it institution, right? So if there's a truly critical architecture school, I don't know what they're going to produce, but they're going to produce people that are sensible and they're going to think critically. And maybe some of those people will go into policy. Maybe some of those people are going to go into cultural studies that relate to architecture, right? There there, there are issues in Canada, right? With indigenous, with the, with the environment, with these things, they have to do with architecture, right? But... We think of architecture, again, as the labor of making buildings. No, that's a problem, right? Because that's going to always lead us to, you know, the the machine, right? Like keep on destroying, keep on building, keep on contaminating, keep on exploiting, right? So if we think that architecture could be something else, still thinking about architecture in a critical way, then yes, we need those schools. But if it's just to supply labor, then, you know, yes, it, it is it works, right? Because I perhaps it's going to provide some jobs for some people, but I don't think it's sustainable in the long run, right? And, and, and what you asked about taliesin, that's the problem, right? At the moment that we feel like we are finally critically thinking about what we're doing and not repeating and not, uh, and not you know, copying the history of somebody who has been dead for many years, uh, the foundation that cares about making money sees that it's, they're going to make more money by renting the space to do some a kitschy photo shooting of a wedding than to have students there thinking about the future. Right. And, and that's pretty much uh, in that case, you know, what happened to Taliesin is what happens to the humanities everywhere else. Right. To the literature department, to the theater department. Right. Um, because we, we don't think we need culture until we need it right until we realize that there's nothing without art and without and without music and without and without literature and without children's stories and without cinema and without whatever you know design right uh, we realize that the life is pretty superfluous with none of those things right uh, also we, don't, we cannot even think critically right so then we got people storming the capitol building on 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 on, uh, on january sixth right that 's what happens when you sabotage education right when you cannot have people that can think critically about history cannot you know understand their condition you know in relationship to others right that's that's the humanities right like that's the that's the concept of understanding life as a complex uh set of relations right
2: um but i think also i just want to go back also to, to the idea of education and the idea of architecture because it's a little bit to link Also, like a previous question of thinking, you know, how how did we live? What does it, how did it impact us to live in so many different places? And I think, like, it's it's not to be too romantic, but I think we have to concentrate a lot of what, you know, what, what bonds us together? What is the link? What, what is the, what do we have in common? And I'm thinking a lot of like, we, we read a lot of Achille Bembe and recently he, he, one question he has at the core of his theory is like, what is what is our bien commun? What, what brings us together, right? And thinking of the power of architecture and the understanding of our responsibility, the role, but also participation in architecture, I think is very important. So when we think of, of bringing architecture to the city, it, for me would be like also questioning, you know, what what does it mean? Like what type of education for whom, by whom, but also how can we make people understand that they also have a say in, for example, in the fabric of a city, construction of a city, or, or in how, what, what does it mean to be, I'm sorry, sorry. <laughs> some crossing here. What does it mean also to, to, to be together as a society? And I think because, you know, when you think of architecture, architecture is a physical representation of that, right? It physically... Uh, renders our society as a, as an entity and brings us together but if we don't understand the values that go be, behind that but not just value but I would say more like a role but we have all a role to take in that because the city is for us what we build is for us architecture is for us so yeah. how can and, we and who's the us right and who's the us and I think there, there's a also I'm thinking a lot um, of for Maybe it's like, I don't know if it's like a more French perspective, but I know that even like being a student, I dealt a lot with with this topic of thinking how to engage people in the making of their city. Um, So when we think of, for example, addressing the question of doing like a a program of architecture again, and, and, you know, especially, I think we see that in 2020 with a lot of other really fundamental questions that emerges is, I think we need to redefine what do we mean by architecture school.
3: And what do we mean by architecture? What do we mean by architecture?
2: What you know? Does it make sense now to still still talk about architecture mainly just about you know building project the or like you know again like thinking mm. of a of an image of this you know a singular individual who is going to 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 do a design that will become a project? Does it make make sense to still speak about architecture like that when we can see? like we just saw recently, right, how architecture became just a stage of all the violence that happened, for example, in US during the summer. What does it mean also to question what happened to to the urban fabric and our place also in the public space? And yeah, I think that would be, a, 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 <laughs> I mean, of course, like it's a wide topic and a lot of things to unfold, but I, I really hope that, again, that's like a start of a conversation for something that could bring some change.
3: And and I think like going on that, right, because I I don't want to jump in a certain model of architecture because uh, we've been publishing all these manuals about how we had to unmake the architecture school, right? Uh, Education in general, but particularly architecture, right? Uh, Because those are the spaces that implement that. And there's a system in place that has been doing this for a long time, right? Where women were not allowed in, where black people were nowhere to be found, where indigenous people are still not even there. It's difficult to find them, right? Uh, in these spaces of, our, of architectural education. So if we're going to make a school, what type of school do we have to make? We haven't seen it yet. So whatever it is, is not going to be Taliesin, right? Taliesin, it was a really faulty model. Like we, we could make something out of it, luckily, right? But it was really, really faulty. So so what is that, right? And, and we really need to critically think about what can be done, right? Whatever model is going to happen there in, Ed, in, in Edmonton, it has to reflect on the context, right? On the historical context, in the material context. If you're only responding to the fact that there are worker, working people and stuff like that, that's just a neoliberal model of supplying labor, right? So it's not going to be just, It's not. it's not what is needed really to transform something, right? And we never, we should never be satisfied with what we have in the sense of society, right? Because we are so far from where we should be. So, how can we articulate that? And how can we allow those spaces? You know, what would be more beneficial? And, and right now is a moment where education is an, in a crisis globally, right? Some places are acknowledging, some other places are ignoring it. And all the you know, universities are in, are in crisis. They're wondering like, what do we do? How do we change this? You know, how do we get out of this pit we have been digging for so long? How do we let people in, right? Uh, how do we relocate resources and and knowledge and wealth, right? Uh, Who is allowed in this party, you know, like there's so many things to think about. Uh, So uh, if it's in relation to a university, if the university is asking those questions, perhaps that's a good way also to relate it, right? In the way that those questions could be maybe addressed easier with a new institution, right? Because you don't have to deal. I mean, the university, I feel like universities are needed because they have an infrastructure that is really powerful, and they have resources, and they can they can really provide for making change, even if they don't want to in some cases, right?
0: Yeah, but they're so they're so corrupt and they're so large that they, well, I shouldn't say this, myself, <laughs> but my my impression is that they are, and they're very uh, saturated with the wrong type of thinking, and it feels like yes, but I'm with change. you. Like like that's what I want. I want to, to restart this whole thing, but like, how do you with 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 the existing infrastructure, right? A, a
3: third university is possible. That's what Walla Paperson mm-hmm. wrote. Um, I believe in the university, but I don't believe in the university as it is. But I believe I believe in public universities. I believe in the universities that are truly public. That's the only way that the colonizing project can exist. And Achibembe says that, and many other people have said it. Uh, but the, the, and, and I really truly believe that that's true and architecture being part of that, I, I don't believe architecture schools should be alone. Like, so yeah. in that way, I don't think the Taliesin model is as successful as it could have been if it's in relationship to other forms of knowledge, like, you know, other disciplines and other thinkers, because we are too limited in our scope. Right. And, and life is never just one thing. Right. So having a network of people around that, have completely different questions, is fundamental to be able to move forward.
2: And I think also, like I'm thinking of a quote of Paulo Freire, he says, education should be freedom or should bring freedom. And it's like, I think also in in our societies, we have to really redefine uh, the role of education in a way, because uh, as we see often, it becomes a business, right? But how can it become really like, you know, a, a, a core, it should be a core value, a cherished value, right, for our societies. And what does it mean to to have access, true, true access to education and for what purposes, right? But it's not just a commodifying one.
0: Yeah, yeah. People always think that Canada's, you know, Europe. Europe has a better education model than America, and people always think Canada has such a good education model in theory. But
3: yeah,
0: uh, our tuition is expensive. You know, yeah, and there's
3: and it's like we're we're
0: stuck. We're stuck all, as students. That's it.
3: I measure it for the disenfranchisement, right? Like. Indigenous people in Canada doesn't have, don't have it pretty good, right? And the history of education regarding that is very problematic sure. too, right? Mm-hmm. So that, yeah. that's, that's for me my argument. And I have it sometimes with a Canadian Canadian friend or something gets angry at me and say, hey, I, I, I didn't make this, you know, I'm just stating a fact. You know, I, pre, I read some pretty believable people, you know, that have done their research. They're nowhere near where they should be, right? So that's something that has to be talked about. Of course, you have a really lousy neighbor downstairs, so... It helps <laughs> to make you look good.
0: <laughs> well, one, one of the neighbors downstairs just moved out. So that's okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's a lot shifting right now with education. You guys mentioned it a little bit. There's a lot of digital stuff going on. And it's, it's almost laughable in some instances. Like those Ivy League schools that you guys brought up earlier, like, they're still charging their tuition rates and it's online. So in the future of like learning in general, but we can, I guess we can only talk about architecture really, but you know, like, like what's to say that YouTube doesn't start a university soon or something, you know, like, like that's how people learn things these days. People just go on YouTube, how to do this, how to draw a section, how to do that. Like, I mean, they look up technical things and they can go on avenues like this for theory and things like that. But in general, I mean, do you guys think there's a, there's an opportunity for changing things now uh, and if so, how would you change things?
3: I mean, we we open our Loud Readers project, right? The, the alternative school online where it's free and we have all these workshops of different people um, and it's available and it's accessible. And, and we try to, it is a trade school of critical thinking of architecture. Um, on the other hand, it's not enough, right? Again, what you get in the university is not the capacity to, the capacity to get a job. You can get that in YouTube, but I feel like my experience that I got in my university cannot be compared to nothing I got anywhere else. Right. Um, you know, even with the failures and even with the things that were, that are not great and perfect. Uh, but having some of the most amazing writers, you know, being my professors at some point, right. People exposing me to things that I didn't even know existed. Um, my, my classmates, you know, um, so socializing all these things, that's really fundamental, right? Like feedback it's not,
0: loops.
3: And yeah, it's not just, you know, just learning the apprenticeship model in architecture. You can do that. You just go work for somebody. You don't have to go to school to do that. Right. Um, I don't think we treat it as such, like people go to university mostly, you know, sometimes really to get a job and that's fine because, uh, we live in a terrible mm-hmm. neoliberal capitalist society, but, uh, but truly, genuinely, that's not it. Right. No, there's something else right and it's like forming humans you know sensible humans humans with you know some capacity to think critically right uh and i think those things are i don't trust google to give me that you know i i trust i don't trust the university completely but i really don't trust google and i definitely don't trust facebook to give me that you know what i mean so so um I mean, also, it's kind of weird because we make a lot of institutional critique. We work for universities, right? But I don't work for the university. I work for the students or with the students. I don't know if that makes sense, right? So, um, in a way, I truly believe in the project of education and pedagogy. uh, And I feel, in a way, the university is a little bit like democracy, it's not perfect, but maybe one of the okay models that you have out there. It's not the only one. Democracy is also not the only model. We have to be also straightforward with that. Uh, the university is not the only model of education, and it shouldn't be also for everybody. That's why it should be free, right? And your life dignity shouldn't depend on you having accessibility. Sorry, uh, of you having that experience, right? Because you can have any, any other experience and still have a dignified life. That's how it should be, right? Right. Education should be free, accessible, and of quality. And if you're great at working with your hands and you hate reading books and thinking about critical stuff, you can have a dignified life too, right? doesn't mean that because you read Plato, you're a better human being than somebody that didn't read Plato, right? It's completely unrelated. Um, yeah. so, so we have to understand that, right? So the university, in an ideal sense, is there for that. Now, is it really like that? That's questionable, right? But I, but I believe, you know, like there's many people in the universities that are believing this, you know, uh, and and we met, we have met many of them, people that truly believe in the project of pedagogy, and they're really there because they love teaching and because they believe in education, and they will make the university free, right? And mm-hmm. uh, that's like most of the people that believe this, most of them they're in the university. <laughs> which is also funny, right? Like the relationship of education and and being able to articulate these ideas as a program, as a system. uh, It is part of that, right? Uh, And that's why a lot of, you know, sometimes right-wing arguments are like, I hate the university. I hate the idea of this like left-wing sort of uh, incubation hub of like sort of uh, liberal assholes that want to like, legalize everything and you know like uh, uh, sort of let all the immigrants in and let women do whatever they want with their bodies you know it's like yeah exactly that's exactly what we want you know like so <laughs> that that's the whole point right um, so so yeah that that's more or less what the thing like
2: but just also thinking of your question if there would be like some things that we can learn from from the situation and the, from the ways we've been kind of operating in this very strange and Unique, but maybe <laughs> not the last, unfortunately. But kind of time that just happened, and I, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, maybe there's in the in the way that we could create more networks. I think if if it's something that we can keep thinking about, um, because of a you know because of a medium, but because we could uh, reach online, reach people that maybe you would have never yeah. met, maybe because there's like this. Of course, I mean, I, but then, I mean, say- there's so
3: much people without internet.
2: No, I, I agree. I, I was just thinking, you know, what can we take from that?
3: Yeah. The problem is that because we don't treat the internet as a, as a public, as a public uh, infrastructure, you know, it is like, imagine that you needed a car to, to, to go to university. It's private Perfect. property, right? So it's the same with the internet. The internet is basically a car that a lot of people cannot afford.
0: Mm -hmm. so
3: if you only do classes online you i think you make it even in a way more exclusive right because at least the possibility that you you end up going there and staying there and studying however remote the chance for a lot of people is real right but how we treat a private piece of infrastructure up to now i don't i haven't been in a single country where internet is public yeah so how can you have public education through private infrastructure. Yes. you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean? And not only the internet, no. the computer, right? So okay. there's two private things involved there to be able to have education. I mean, right?
2: And that's not even speaking about the situation of everyone, right? Because you have to be also in a very kind of ideal uh, privileged situation where you can have a space, you know, at home where you can connect a good connection, a good computer, but also the time and the the capacity to have a space kind of, of, you know, uh, delimitated or really just for that. And I think when we think of, you know, resources, it it, it is really true. It's not just access to internet, but also what kind of access, right? And what type of tools and...
3: So so on one hand, you know, we have our readers and all that, and it's nice, we can reach some people, but truly speaking, you know, the, the level, the precarity of the disenfranchised communities it has been exponentially exacerbated with with what's happening if we want to be real right yeah, uh, yeah. the people that were disenfranchised before now they're really messed up you have to go to a trouble home maybe with no resources be there all the time and then focus on school like yeah. you know it is so much to deal with, you know, like, and, and uh, we having these arguments, like literally like uh, some faculty members here hate me because I told them we're not going to do a student competition because uh, it is unfair. It's not right now is the, the moment of least equality in education. And I know it because I can see the students that maybe don't have the facilities or don't have Internet. How I'm going to expect them to produce in a fair environment the same thing as somebody else that is much more comfortable. Like, I'm yeah. not here to create more inequality. This doesn't make sense. It's not sensible at all, right? Like, you don't care about them if you do this. And mm-hmm. then, like, we've always been doing this like that, right? Like, so there's this sort of adamancy to, to like, reject any type of reflection on the times. And, and, and it's real, you know. Inequality is real. Both of our uh, our, our mothers are, are teachers, school teachers. And they're having a horrible time uh, working with kids on the internet. Right? I mean, yeah. your mom with the college students and my mom in the school teachers, like kids are not there or don't have the infrastructure to do it. You know, like what's happening with that? Uh, we, we don't know yet. Like this is going to be a generation of some people that are going to have an amazing opportunity like us, where we are listening to all the most amazing lectures and meeting with people online and people that literally are being completely left behind. Yeah.
0: yeah.
3: Like completely this. Yeah. Before they didn't matter and now they matter even less. It's just like, we, we met students in Brazil, where they, in Brazil some schools literally closed. At some point they said like, boom, that's it. They didn't say anything, you're, you're, you're on your own, right? Like figure out yeah. how to do this. Yeah. Semester was not over or anything, right? Like, yeah, is- we've
0: never seen anything like this. Like, you know, with the invention of the car and things like that, like that created disparity and, and those kinds of things happen, but like the internet, we, we think it's this like uber democratic thing, but really we need we need to click save as with the internet and then we need internet 2.0 and it has to be public and accessible and yeah I mean and, they, you, they, and you see it like you say it, like because a lot of workplaces are doing the same thing. A lot of places are like work from home and and you have to go work from home and you have to have an internet connection and your internet connection has to be as good or better than the office because that's what they expect. If you're lucky, they'll give you infrastructure actually a computer to go home with. Or you have to have a powerful laptop to run, like the programs we have to run? Like, no way, right? And then even if, so on your education point, like, even if somebody didn't have this, they would find a way to a library and access it. But libraries are closed right now. So, like, really, it really forces us to rethink, like, what the F is going on?
3: Yeah. Uh, I mean, again, it shows the inequality just... Wars, you know, people die more of COVID, have less access to education. It's all like a very mad, bad miss, mix, right? So again, like we're really comfortable here, you know, in the inside of the house with the internet connection that is steady and, you know, people around us. But that's not the fact for most people, right? It's just. It's brutal.
1: I really liked at the beginning when you were talking about how and I think you mentioned this in one of your uh, lectures, how you have a, a projects you keep that um, have failed. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about failure. I know you've mentioned it a little bit already and how, you know, at the time when you're sitting in it, it feels awful and you can't really see the light at the end of the tunnel. But for you guys, having that failure actually created like the best thing for the two of you. So, yeah. and I feel like, like cu- culturally, we don't really talk about failure as much as we talk about successes, yeah. Yeah. but you, typically in your failure is where you learn the best lessons. So I'd like to just, you know, hear your perspective on that.
3: Yeah. So we, we talk to our students about failure a lot because they ask us this year, like one of our students, she, she asked us like, you know what what about failure what about like risk because i mean we show like a bunch of flowery projects you know and things like this is going good this is great and whatever but i forgot to mention that when we lost the competition in moscow the gallery was the second project we did
1: oh, okay well the, the
3: still <laughs> the first project we did was a project called this narrative architecture project the palace of failed optimism
1: that's what it was
3: that's <laughs> the name and and that was um for us, it was a narrative, Like right? We use always narratives to try to address some critical issues, right? Uh, and that was uh, a building that was um, uh, a hangar where you put all the projects that lost, that, that failed. And then, of course, there's so many that the thing keeps spiraling upwards endlessly, right? And it's like the, the, the ever-growing uh, structure. Um, in a way, it was a way to how to channel all the frustration like I mean, when I say, like I was destroyed. It was really, really destroyed. I was like emotionally down. Like this is it, you know? I thought that this is it, because for many years it's like we're publishing and making all these exhibitions, you know, on our own, and we cannot do anything. Pretty much, we like we we like living in China, but we kind of we cannot get back anywhere. We kind of trapped in a way too, so we don't have options. We also. We cannot get into teaching because the universities, their work really strange. So there's no way we can teach language wise. You know, like what we talk about is not really welcome in the, in in that type of a university. Um, and then we felt like we were, we were being critical and a lot of people were not critical. They, they get exposure and they get to do things. I was like, this doesn't make sense. Uh, so all that frustration was like, you know, that's, that's it. you know, like this doesn't make sense. You know, if we would have gotten this project, at least we can keep running for a bit longer, but now we get, we get the money, but that's it. Nobody's going to invite us to another competition like this. Or how do we even start, you know, on our own? Um, uh, Because we don't want to make people work for free if we're getting paid. Right. So there needs to be a sustainable economic model in that way. So all the reflection and whatever, but try to make something with that suffering, and that's where the project came into be, because if you're going to think about it. You had to do it. So it was more like, I feel really bad. So I'm going to make an architecture project about this. Let's do like this project and then write about it. It's, it's a bit strange now because uh, we've been doing this for 12 years. And I feel like every single thing we ever done has gotten published somewhere. But now it makes sense. But back then it didn't. Right. So in hindsight, yes, great. You know, it worked out seems to have worked out but i feel like there's a lot of luck involved there and that's also real right like um there were people that saw us at a certain point like also we hustle a lot like we, we will print our independent magazines and send them to curators and stuff like that we then did, we, we didn't have any money and we will it will cost almost like between printing one issue and shipping it i will spend almost a 50 that i didn't have at all like that's a lot of money when you're really broke right like to ship those things to whatever they are. So people can see that you exist. It is very, uh, uh, I would say it's very precarious as a, as a, as a situation. Um, and that was the feeling for a long time. Like we're fucked, like there's no way, like literally like we, we can keep on doing this for maybe one more year or something like that, but we're not gonna change the model of the gallery because this is what it, that was, this is, what it is. It's getting us no money. Our money of the competition was in Puerto Rico because that's where we paid tax at that point as a company. I mean, we still do. If we do a project, it's there that is registered. So the tax stays in the island. It's a lot of tax we pay. We have no access to that money. So we're still operating here with the salary that I used to get and don't get anymore, the salary that Natalie may get, and spending all these things in publications, exhibitions. It's like, this doesn't make sense at all, other than the cultural part of it right? Like the project is valuable enough for us, but we're going to die. You know, if we keep on doing this right at some point, we're going to run out dry. So then what, what, and then what, right. Uh, And it seems that we're kind of locked. So that's a lot of anxiety, but also a lot of uh, stress of like, holy shit, you know, like there's no plan B because we never had a plan B for nothing. Obviously I I arrived to Europe with with no (laughs) ticket to return. Um, then it takes a lot of improvisation and luck and doing your work, like researching and reading and publishing and figuring out the things that you're interested, but doing it a lot. And luckily at some point it came out that it worked out that somebody, you know, teach here or teach there. We also could have gone to Taliesin and then returned to China. And then that was it too. Right. Because uh, Nebraska happened because somebody told somebody and then somebody invited us, you know, it's always like, you're one person away from failing or one person away from getting one step further. You see what I mean? Um, and, and we always tell everybody, you know, it is stressful. Uh, and having, we always tell everybody, you know, you should be in control. I mean, you're never going to be in control, but you should decide what you want to do and see your options, which we truly believe. But also you have to understand that there's a risk involved, yeah. right? That hopefully it will come back to you, but that's not, a, it's not guaranteed, right? Like there's no, no paper that is going to tell you, yes, if you do step one, step two, step three, especially coming from a precarious situation like me, like no real money or nothing like that, or connections, first architect in the family, um, um, being in a country where you, you don't belong, right? Like being in many countries where I don't belong, um, You know, being there, at least being two, I think, help a lot in that case. So mitigates the risk. So sometimes one of us can do something while the other one is doing something else that is for the project of us. Right. And and that helps. So that's also a a fact, right? Like being two of us allowed us to take certain type of risk that a single person wouldn't have been able to do.
0: Mm -hmm.
3: Right. Because Mm -hmm. one can do a project and earn some money while the other one is working for free doing something else. Right. Um, and then we still sustain ourselves. Uh, we never really live a bad life. We always have like good food and, and, you know, um, do exercise, you know, so still it's not like we are dying doing this. Right. But, uh, but understanding that the history of architecture or the history of design or whatever, understanding what practitioners did, Sometimes it helps, but sometimes it's frustrating because you, re- you realize that a lot of them are, had a really comfortable, you know, like environment, like uncle this, uh, this, that. Uh, and then what happens when you don't have that?
1: Yeah. yeah.
3: What can you do? Uh, luckily, technology has changed and it, it has opened a bunch of doors, right? So you don't have to be in the AA in London to meet somebody like it was in the 70s, but rather somebody can discover you online. I think we're talking in Zoom right now, right? So that Mm -hmm. was impossible before. So Mm -hmm. we also are a product of the time. So we can take certain risks because the payback will come through other mediums, right?
2: Yeah. Um, But it's true that it was like, I mean, as Cruz described it, it was quite intense and and quite hard, of course, to be honest, especially when we were in Beijing and at the beginning, as we were explaining, because uh, also there's kind of this anxiety that, we all have, right, if, 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 you know, nobody comes really to you, you still want to make things, you want to make things happen, you want to make projects, you want to have exhibitions and all this. So it became really like a, also like a mode of operating, of doing everything by yourself,
4: mm-hmm. which,
2: you know, led to like fantastic project and we learned a lot. And, and um, I mean, we all, you know, at the end, everything turned out very well, but it was at the time, you know, taking a lot of risk one after the next, because we knew that if we wouldn't make it, uh, maybe yeah. they w- it wouldn't happen. But we haven't
3: made anything yet, also. That's also a fact. Because uh, another thing is, like, the things that we want to do, like uh, make schools and design things, we're far from doing that yet, right? So I wouldn't say that it's a success story at all, right? Like, I would like to do things in Puerto Rico, and I have not. I cannot even think of a way to do it, right? Like, economically or... or um, so... Even in the US, you know, many years were completely precarious. Like we were, you know, yearly contract. We didn't have health insurance when COVID happened, you know, because we were in a fellowship and then it was over. And then it's like we cannot see anybody because if we get sick, we, we are in the US, right? Like with no health insurance. Yeah. Good luck, you know. Yeah. Um,
0: so there's another uh, shining more light on, on- Covid shining more light on issues, right? Yes,
3: right. Like, and 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 still, we were privileged enough, right? Like, we have a place where we stay safely. We have neighbors that supported us, food, uh, and it was and it was still risky for us in that regard, right? So, the level of precarity is still there in a way, right? Like, uh, I feel like a lot of people, maybe being in the US and being educated in certain institutions, they have a path kind of thrown for them already, right? Uh, but we don't come from that. So we had to somehow figure out and somehow like hustle your way so people know that you exist. So they respect what you're doing because your research doesn't look like theirs at all. Right. Like are the questions we're asking, sometimes people don't even never heard those questions before. Right. Yeah. Or, right. So so it is a constant risk, but it's not because we're looking for it.
1: Right? Yeah. Yeah.
3: It is. It is not like a love danger at all. Right. I, I, as you have as you heard, as with the anecdote of the coyotes, I'm not really into like uh, adventure in the woods or nothing like that, right? So, so how do we, how do we avoid that? I don't want any risk. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, so
0: I, I think I'm thinking about the offset of like of like failing and then like wanting to keep pushing so hard that you succeed at something, but then there's this like thing that. We we talk about maybe in architecture, but we, but none of us practice it as good as we preach it, and that's like overworking, and that's like the like the whole like I need to go so hard, and then you just blow up, or or you don't have a healthy mental state, or or like all the and then it turns into a physical thing or whatever. But how do you guys manage, and, and what are your thoughts on maybe more more importantly, what are your thoughts really on like being okay to take a deep breath or something like that? Like what like what what would you what do you say to people? How do you recommend? students or young architects just be okay with taking it taking a step back or do you have to slug it out for
2: us this was like i mean it was really intense because at some point we were both working in offices and we also were doing our projects so you have like the the time of a working design office which is already kind of crazy in itself and then going home you know maybe at 10 at night and still work or 12 and work until two or three and again, again, every day, so we, was, we learned the hard way, but because that was like- I'm all for how, laziness. How, yeah, <laughs> how we had to do it, but we, but I think that's something really important and to speak about to to everyone, right? Who, who practice in the field, because also it's a, it's a problem because it becomes this kind of culture of overworking. And I think yeah. it, it's all very personal. You really need to understand what are your limits, what also do you want to do with the field, right? Because now we're speaking, you know, of our case, which is, uh, of course, really unique to us, right? Because we, that's how we define our life too, with what we do. So, you know, that's that's how maybe we could manage to do what we did. But of course, we, this is not to impose to anyone, right? And I think it's really important to know what are your limits, mm-hmm. you know, how do you want, to, how do you want to define. Uh, the sphere of work and we are totally we really agree on that that it you know life is more important
3: yeah. as te- as teachers too like for example in studio so you got you got an image of us in Taliesin probably that is a bit more extreme than what anybody else have experienced because you have to understand when we go to Taliesin we really were trying to change a culture of uh, of uh, of what the students were doing and we were really like like drilling that like uh, like in a kind of aggressive manner uh because i I know like our former students that are our friends now they have funny jokes that most people don't get because they never saw that side of us where we are like a you know like a military boot camp <laughs> hardcore twenty four seven so we're not like that most of the time right uh we we teach our students to work smartly like. Always work towards the final, you know, how to produce certain type of work that is of high quality, but that you keep working on it again and again. So it's much more efficient in the way that you don't discard work and you start from scratch, uh, that you're always working towards that goal of having certain skills that would allow you to do that. And there's a lot of emphasis on that. Our students in all the universities where we've been, they usually finish a week before than everybody else and they are well uh, they slept well before the presentations and they you know and the work is really good quality right like because we can administer the time we can communicate those ideas uh, in seminars we literally discuss the value of laziness versus uh, you know like precarious work and exploitation as a as a value to 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 to, to pursue right in the idea of laziness as a virtue as a malevich says or 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 uh, uh, Mladen Stilinovich with the um, in defense of laziness, right? Like these are real philosophical positions that are anti-capitalist. I truly believe in that, right? Uh, on the other hand, we as people, like we are also slightly different. I am like hyperactive, right? So I need to be more be making stuff. It doesn't mean that it's work, right? But probably it will end up being work in the in the sense that. It's going to be something related, but it has to do more with my pace, right? Uh, if we can do nothing, that will always be the choice, right? So that I feel like if I could literally just play with the chickens and go play basketball <laughs> or run, that's what I want to do, right? But we don't have that luxury, right? Yeah. Uh, but that should be the goal. And 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 I feel like probably will produce much more meaningful stuff, anyways, right? If we really have time to think and to reflect on what's happening, but it's a luxury to do that, right? Um, on the other hand, there is a, what you saw, you know. It's like if you're really trying to change a place and you're pretty much alone, right? Like it was a very small faculty, and we are there, you know, as the only teachers on site, and and you really try to change the culture, it was hard, you know, like and and. People have certain expectations and we're like, no, you know, that's not our expectation. So. So what's up? What are we going to do? Right. And then keep on working (laughs) until it works. Uh, I had to say that coming some years later to Taliesin, it worked. The culture change happened. Right. Like there was already different change of attitude and so on. But it was kind of we had to do it. Right. Uh, uh, Because the school was changing and because uh, there was some sort of sort of change of mentality and so on uh, in relationship to history and stuff like that. Um, On the other hand here, you know, uh, if we can afford to produce works that are meaningful and critical and live life, that's the way to go, right? Um, That's really fundamental, right? And that's why it's really important to learn certain things in a, a, you know, and to trust the process and, and, and so on.
0: Yeah, living a life as well, yeah.
3: Yeah, I mean, otherwise, how can you how can you even think about designing spaces where people will live life if you don't even know what life looks like? <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. If I had time, I sure would love this public space that I'm spending all my life. Exactly, it?
3: exactly. Yeah, yeah. If I wouldn't be in this office for twenty eight hours.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I uh, we have lots of other things that we can ask and things like that. I know uh, I've got I've got this lovely book. At home here. (laughs) You You guys will recognize that one. Nice.
3: Nice.
0: Narrative Architecture, uh, a manifesto. Nice. nice. You also have some anti-racist manifestos, manuals that you guys have put out. Uh, One based on restructuring education and one um, restructuring architecture. Uh, And you have a really fun way of going about it. Uh, Each paragraph is a different letter in Black Lives Matter. know, that kind of thing, which, which adds another layer of of intrigue. Um, But I guess in closing, would you guys, do you guys want to make any, any tell people where to buy the books perhaps Um, hopefully more than just Amazon, but also uh,
3: a lowdown on what, what you did. So, so we had the, our, uh, I mean, that was supposed to be the book. Our book of 2020 was supposed to be the narrative architecture book. We've been working on it for several years. We're really happy with how it turned out. Like it's a history of a, a critical history of a certain period in the 20th century of a subversion in architecture and how can we use it today? Um, we made all the images. We have some amazing graphic designers working with us and an amazing yeah. publisher in the NIE. Um, nice some, uh, we, we, I think like the project ended up fantastic and we were really happy and we were ready to do all the book releases and then, you know, March arrived, covid black lives matter. And we're like, you know, time for another book. So we published the manifesto, the anti-racist manifesto. And after that, you know, it was translated. it, It was like showed around. And then we, I was having some problems communicating with the institutions regarding when I said that something is structurally racist, nobody will understand or very few people will understand. I was like, I think I have to explain to these people what this means. So then the manual, Was born where we try to explain it's not only what you're doing, but it's what it was done even before you got here, right? And what is gonna be done after you finish school, right? So it's like before the school, during school, and after school. So it's free. So that one can be downloaded from our webpage, the manual. Uh, We just published last uh, Friday, I feel, uh, the Spanish version. So it got translated all. So now it's it spells black lives matter in English. And then in Spanish it says Las vidas negras important, which is, so we had to add some parts because there's more words <laughs> there. <laughs> of course, you know, so this also part of the project is that right now, when we finish here, we go to a talk in uh, UCLA that we are talking with pool, the magazine or the student magazine. We are talking about the manual because I wanted to discuss it. So it, we're going to focus solely on that. But the idea is that it's not just a tool to think about these problems but also it's a design project too, right? Like the graphics are designed, like the text is a, it it is still have our values there. It's like, not because it's anti-racist has to be a text that you don't care about. You know, it is still like poetry, right? Um, So it is important that what we do is a a design project too, right? That is not just the diversity and inclusion committee, right? That is always treated as as a side project, but really central, that's, is really central to the to the to the questions that we're trying to ask and, and and challenges that we're trying to bring and then you know with the narrative architecture book you can get them in bookstores if they're open in some of them uh and you can get it online also i think like it's in a bunch of even independent bookstores i saw like a really amazing independent bookstore in arizona feminist bookstore they sell it there uh because it's like a big distributor so i think it's i saw people that saw it they bought it in europe or in asia so I, I feel it's all over the place
0: is it a dutch uh dutch distributor
3: yeah it is a uh, press the NIE 010, that is the netherlands institute of architecture uh publishers um so it, it is you know it is available uh, and it's also in amazon I, I think amazon was like half price i was seeing so that's pretty cheap. I mean, fuck yes, Jeff Bezos, of course. But, you know, if you're going to save yourself $20, go for it, right? So, so uh, uh, the, the, I use Amazon because I have no choice most of the times, right? But, um, yeah, I mean, and, and we're really happy that people are reading the books and reading the manifesto and, like, students have written to us. We're doing a bunch of workshops with different universities on the topic but always you know using narrative architecture and stuff like that, so we 're not there as the diversity consultants, but rather like let's let's think about how design is about this. It has always been about this, so if we 're not addressing it, it's our problem right so let's engage on it in a more holistic way and more critical way so that's been it's been really cool in Puerto Rico. the first translation of the of the manifesto was published in a like a left wing newspaper right so it was not even in architectural media right so I feel like that's oh. a that's an achievement for 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 us. Like going there in the real and 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 we heard, you know, intellectuals and and uh, and, and authors and commentators discussing the manifesto on on their platforms, right? So that's been really like uh, rewarding, right? So it's not only this is not written for architects. With uh, the mainstream, it is written for everybody, and even the vocabulary. If you read the narrative architecture book, it is more like some some jargon and some philosophical references (laughs) that may be more obscure for some people uh, because we wanted to make a book like that you know it's still a work of art in a way but the other one that is really like you know a project for the people it, it is a much more accessible type of writing in a way so hopefully you know there's something that comes out of it hopefully
0: well i think people are looking for ways to to learn and to transition and stuff like that so the more the more that people can start to make plans and have ideas actually about it Rather than just complaining about it is is huge because I know I know lots of people are just unsure of what to do now
3: so. yeah
0: yeah because I mean I mean you've you mentioned you've been dealing with it since forever where right? since you went to Europe um well before, and I know before, that in
3: Puerto Rico too right like since I was born, yeah. since you're small right like it's something that is real like uh, latent
0: yeah exactly and so I think people like I haven't I'm like a, I'm a straight white guy like I cisgender guy like uh, I'm, I hit all the boxes of, of uh, priority and privilege there, you yeah. know? It's like, I, I know nothing of anybody's yeah. Um, challenges. Yeah, so.
3: but usually the question is like, why, like in certain places, why everybody around me looks like me? That's the question, right? So then wh- where is everybody else? And that's where we start really reconstructing everything.
0: And it's, and not to, not to like slam my peers to identify like I just mentioned, but there are so many different perspectives out there and, you know, I don't just want to hear different versions of my own story, you know, yeah, and yeah, totally. designs that, that come from same places
3: yeah. that mine do. Totally, totally. So. Completely agree with you. Mm. But, okay, cool. Thanks a lot.
2: Thank it's you yeah, yeah. You. It's really Thanks for nice you. so much, to
0: you too. Well, I'm excited to see uh, what you guys do next, for sure.
1: I would just like to say thank you for graciously giving us your time and your energy today. It was so nice to meet the two of you and you've given me so much to think about. So thank you.
3: (laughs) Thank you. Thanks
2: a lot. It was great to be able to discuss.
3: Yeah.
0: And now for a brief discussion between Madecast and our title sponsor, Dialogue. Here, we discuss how the future Valley Line Transit System took design hints from the vernaculars of European cities, we learn about the ins and outs of the ups and downs of the transit line, and we get a behind-the-scenes look at some of the highlights we can all look forward to.
4: So I'm Sandra Renahan, I'm a structural engineer and associate at Dialog and I work out of our Edmonton studio. Um, I started working at Dialog way back in 2011 um, as a structural engineer and for the first six or so years of my career, I worked as a structural designer um, in my very early engineering career as an engineer in training and then as a junior engineer. uh, working on some really great institutional building projects. So I got to work on some really fun things in Edmonton, like the Royal Alberta Museum and the NorQuest uh, Singmar Centre for Learning, which is the newer college campus downtown for NorQuest, um, as well as some of the um, entrance buildings at the Edmonton Valley Zoo, um, and had really great experience working on some of those building projects, um, both in kind of helping out with the design and then also helping out with the construction administration. So I spent a lot of time um, on the construction sites, watching those things get built, and that was a really good learning experience as well to kind of see how everything comes together. Um, so that was really fun but then I was uh, tapped on the shoulder at Dialog to see if I was interested to start working on something a bit new for Dialog which is um, a, a, an LRT system. Uh, so, um, so yeah I was asked to join the team for the Valley Line West LRT. Uh, Dialog had already been working on the Valley Line Southeast LRT which is the first stage of the Valley Line. Um, and now the West stage was already starting. So Dialogue's role on this project is as part of the City of Edmonton's owner's engineering team. So basically, we are a big group of consultants, um, Dialogue being one of them, uh, being led by ACOM primarily as our prime consultant. A big group of consultants all brought together to kind of be the City's technical expertise uh, for putting together the preliminary design of the Valley Line LRT. So we're just kind of acting as uh, the city's helper to, um, yeah, come up with the preliminary planning and and the early stages of of the design, and then helping them procure the contract with the uh, design builders for both legs of the alignment, and then and then making sure that things stay on track during construction the whole time. So, so that's what I've been working on since about 2017 now.
0: All right. So, in in that journey of trying to design a whole new thing for Edmonton um, because there's a lot of conversation around uh, below ground, above ground, at grade, especially with the LRT lines and uh, uh, existing and and new. Um, So how did dialogue and I guess maybe, maybe not from dialogue, but from your perspective or both, um, tackle the challenge of Trying to see how all these different typologies could exist in Edmonton, and did it involve um, studying other regions and learning from other from other vernaculars?
4: Yeah, so um, dialogue has been very involved with that type of conversation for this alignment. So dialogue's particular role, kind of on the consul- the wider consulting team uh, for this project, is. Um, the kind of urban integration, uh, so how the um, system kind of integrates into the neighborhoods, as well as um, the structural and architectural and mechanical and electrical design of, of the buildings along the alignment, like the operations and maintenance facilities and the stops and the stations and and the bridges and and um, elevated guideway structures. So, um, but yeah, in our role as kind of the urban design input um, dialogue uh when the project kind of first started um in really the early planning stages before it was even broken up into the two different stages that it was eventually broken up into which is kind of the southeast stage and the west stage um dialogue had to help the city come up with sort of a, a design philosophy for the project that would kind of inform um how how the whole design was approached for the project and how they um the LRT was going to fit into the communities and whatnot. So, um, so we came up with um, a what we call sustainable urban integration, or SUI, um, and the city has adopted that for the project, and that's been really um, a, a great thing. So, sustainable urban integration has been how we kind of make all of the decisions, like the ones you're talking about, like. Should, should we be at grade or should we be below grade or above grade and, and how are we integrating into the streets and how do we make sure that everything fits in? So, so SUI sort of is, is how we integrate our LRT into communities with um, accessibility and walkability and urban design. And it kind of, um, yeah, addresses the question of how do we make sure when we're building transit, we're also building a community. So um, for SUI, we certainly did have to look into other places in the world uh, because our current LRT system at Edmonton was um, largely designed from a completely different perspective than that. Uh, it was designed in the seventies and it was really designed for as more of a um, a way to get from point A to point B. And point A to point B was basically usually, you know, how do we get people from the suburbs into the core and then vice versa uh, to get them yeah. back to their homes at the end of the Is day. That-
0: is that a, um I feel like I've heard that word used to describe the existing system as a suburban style where it's like a meter off the ground or, or or more. Is is that is that part of that?
4: Yeah, exactly. So yeah, we basically that's what we consider the um the existing capital line LRT. And there's not no as no slight to the capital line LRT, but that is yeah. what it was yeah. kind of designed for is a suburban system to try to get uh, people from the suburbs into downtown basically as quickly as possible and then get them home at the end of the day. So it was about um, basically, yeah, just getting people um, from A to B without um, without really much consideration for the communities in between and without much consideration for what ha- what happened at stops and stations um, or between stops and stations of the alignment, right? It was, it was these are the places where we're going to pick people up and it doesn't really matter what's happening in between them. <laughs> Um, but the, what we wanted to do now, um, the city of Edmonton, to their great credit, has um, realized that um, sort of the driving force of LRT and the, and the um, transformational potential of LRT now is its ability to connect communities and really to like revitalize businesses and reshape cities. And, and, uh, and so now their vision is really much more about um, linking transportation with land use planning, um, and connecting communities to kind of build a healthier city. So, um, so yeah, it was to their the, the city of Edmonton's great credit that they um, were really pushing for this kind of new design philosophy that we helped them develop, which is what we call sustainable urban integration. And we were re- um, inspired by mostly by European cities for that kind of a thing. Like Copenhagen was a good example of a of a city who successfully kind of changed their. Um, whole cityscape uh, through a very urban style LRT system being introduced
0: okay and it was it's it's lower grade not lower grade (laughs) it's it's the physical elevation of where you get on is is lower and I guess in theory and and I guess as you saw in practice in Copenhagen and I I think I've seen that in in quite a few European cities um does that mean it's it's going to be slower those types of things or is it just it's just as effective at getting people from point A to point B, like you talked about the suburban style. Um, but you're, I guess you're saying it's also more effective, um, at at actually like being a bit more humanistic in between the stops.
4: Yeah, that's right. So it it is, um, it is a lower system. So it's called a low floor LRT system, which basically means that, um, the distance between the floor of the vehicle and the road or trackway below it is much smaller than our existing high floor LRT system where uh, when you go into the stations, you'll see that you know the, from your platform, if you look down into the tracks, you're looking into a big pit that's like quite a bit below you. This that's low scary. floor LRT just runs just on rails that are basically right into the street level and then pulls up to stop platforms that are only 300 millimeters above road level and then you enter flush boarding from those platforms. So so the advantage of a low floor LRT system obviously is, um, well, there's a few advantages, one of them being just accessibility. Uh, um, Everything's much more accessible because it just doesn't require kind of such a big uh, scale um, and uh, and it has level boarding from a very low platform. And uh, yeah, so it has huge benefits for accessibility. But also it has benefits for just like um, minimizing the kind of barriers and whatnot that are required because if you don't have to build up these, this huge platform that, that extends really high above your streetway, that means you don't have a barrier in the middle of your streetway anymore. Now it's just, you know, rails that sort of just disappear and you don't really notice them that they're there uh, and you can just drive right over top of them. So it's, um, it's, a, it's a much less intrusive type of design. Uh, but it does. Uh, it is different in terms of getting people from point A to point B. I would say it's it's not necessarily um, it, it's not necessarily that it has to be, but in this case, it is. Um, so the city of Edmonton um, wanted this Valley Line to operate at um, just community speeds, so traffic speeds the same as the as the speed limits of um, the, the cars on the street. And that's not to say that a low-floor LRT vehicle can't go faster, um, but the vision for this LRT system was um, to keep this LRT running at the same kind of speed limits as the street and following the traffic signals of the street in order to reduce the amount of barriers and the delineations between the LRT corridor and the street um, in order to eliminate you know, having to have the crossing arms and the bells and the warning systems and just make this really um, lean and human scale and um, and less intrusive. Um, so the other thing that they wanted to do with this alignment is, um, is stop at as many destinations as required in order to, um, serve the communities that they were passing through. So in this case, they chose to prioritize, um, sometimes having more stops when, when there was going to be, you know, destinations for people to go to or communities that, would have liked to be served by this LRT system. Um, so they prioritized having more stops as opposed to um, fewer stops. And of course, when you stop more, you're gonna it's gonna be generally a bit slower than if you stop less. But the advantage is that you have a, a way bigger collection of um, users. And of course you have a um, um, well, way bigger collection of destinations at the end of the day and places that we can kind of see, hopefully eventually revitalized by the LRT system. So they really did um, take a totally different approach here. And instead of just prioritizing getting from A to B as quickly as possible, it was more about let's get from A to B, but let's um, be not interrupting our communities and not creating a, a, a barrier with our communities. Let's also pick up and drop off as many people as possible to as many destinations as possible. And and um, let's also be ex- as accessible as possible. So. So it definitely um, creates a a balance between, between speed and and all those other factors.
0: a lot of really good points there. And actually when you say them, I I now notice them because I'm thinking about, uh, I grew up in the Northeast of Edmonton and it was both very convenient because it was the only place that you could take the train downtown. And so I, I, you know, I went to school just south of downtown, high school, I should say. And it was like, it was amazing. Right, and I and I, at that time I didn't really recognize that I was the only one in the city with that option. Um, but I also now going back there and, and cycling back there quite quite often. You know, there's a there's a multi-use path right along the train line, and it's both convenient and really sad because everything alongside that train line is uh, bisected by the train line. It's it's you're either on that side or that side. There's there's crossing it is is a headache. Quite frankly, it's it's big roads with big infrastructure to get across it and uh yeah it's it's it'll be exciting to see because i know i didn't even know the the future line i've seen some of the stuff in southeast edmonton and it looks really exciting so i know that there are similar challenges still um but it will be exciting to see the more community-based locations and, uh, and so yeah i guess that that brings me to my uh my other question that i had was structurally speaking or or architecturally speaking you feel free to put on that hat what were some of the, the highlights or the challenges, I guess, of this new system that you either look forward to seeing or bring you nightmares? Well, I'm just saying that you either look forward to seeing or bring you nightmares.
4: Yeah. So some of the, some of the things that have been kind of challenging, um, one of the points you raised earlier was, um, you know, going above ground or going below ground or that type of thing. So that, that's something we've had to deal with at quite a few occasions throughout the project. First of all, in kind of the initial planning stage of, you know, what is our, what does the city want to do? Do, you, do they want to, um, are there any places where we feel like we have to go above or below grade? And then also, um, even after kind of those decisions were made, and, and for the most part, the decision at that stage was, no, let's stay at grade. There's advantages to staying at grade, and that the biggest advantages being, well, of course, compared to underground, in, in that case, the biggest advantage mostly is price. Because um, in a, a below-grade alignment would cost approximately ten times as much as an at-grade alignment when you're going underground, um, particularly if you were doing that through downtown again.
0: Um, what about over? What about over the road? Is there is there a cost number there?
4: Yeah. So when you're going over the road instead of under, it's probably two or three times more expensive. Um, and when you're talking now, the Valley Line is you know approximately you know more than four billion dollars as a total um, at the end of the day. So it's it's not a small amount of difference. Um, but we did, um, but that wasn't the only reason either. When you go above grade, you start to get um, obviously big structures and, and the structures are big. Like, let's be honest, a, a structure to carry a big LR, an LRT system, even a sleek, low floor LRT system are big. And, and they require piers to go down to the grade and sit in the roadway and they require a big, um, big concrete beam that Um, holds the trackways and creates you know shadows and and blocks views and does all those things right and and they create challenges of trying to um connect pedestrians underneath them and also keep those areas you know free from safety risks and stuff when you're in kind of these shadowy environments below these structures so there's a, there's a lot of reasons why the city decided to um, kind of maintain their sustainable urban integration vision and stick with being at grade. But, um, but even as recently as in about 2017 or 18, um, there was some, a lot of public pushback, um, you know, based on LRT experiences that we've had maybe around the metro line and whatnot and as, as citizens of Edmonton. Um, there was a lot of pushback to uh, keep investigating those those types of grade crossings. So, um, so the Edmonton City Council required us to look again and really consider um, the key intersections, I guess, of the Valley Line, like the really busy traffic intersections, and make sure that uh, what we were doing was appropriate. So, our plan for the Valley Line West had always been to grade separate over 170th Street. One um, Seventieth Street uh, and Eighty Seventh Avenue. One um, Seventieth Street is part of the city of Edmonton's wh- what they call the Inner Ring Road, which is kind of like the the inside version of the Anthony Henday. Uh, so that's kind of the White Mud, the Yellowhead, um, and, and in this case, on the West End, One um, Seventieth Street. So, um, so this is a this is an intersection where the city strategically chose to prioritize traffic, vehicle traffic. Um, and, and that's appropriate and that's an appropriate place to do that, so we'd always wanted to grade separate there, but the revisiting of, um, of the uh, grade separations at other intersections that uh, Council had us uh, look into in, in a few years ago uh, made us take a really hard look at 178th Street as well and, and as well as 149th Street. And at the end of the day, um, what we ended up doing there was um, at 178th Street, it it became quite logical to just continue the grade separation that we were already doing over 170th Street another eight blocks to get us over 178th Street as well. It it sort of seemed like uh, the right thing to do to uh, mitigate the traffic impacts in that area when we were already going to have an elevated structure anyway and we were already going to have an elevated station in between 170th and 178th at West Edmonton Mall. Oh, oh. Uh, so it wasn't too much of a, of a difference to kind of just extend that. Uh, but at 149th actually uh, there was a lot of talk about the time about um, and a lot of investigation from our side on doing a roadway underpass so, what we actually thought about doing was um, having the, uh, the LRT running along Stony Plain Road at 149th Street, um, kind of as you would expect, but then having 149th Street traffic dip down below grade um, from what it does now uh, and kind of create this underpass underneath Stony Plain Road that doesn't exist now. And uh, that really tested our our vision for SUI because it sort of goes against you know almost everything that SUI represents uh, when when our we're really wanting to just stick with you know connecting communities and not creating barriers and and making sure that pedestrian um, and cycle traffic is accommodated as well as possible. And now we're putting in sort of a, a big kind of freeway style underpass in a very urban location, right? So um, so we had to do a lot of um, community consultation at that time, um, in order to kind of talk those things through with the public and with stakeholders in that area. So businesses in that area, as well as residents who live around there. And uh, and the overwhelming uh, feedback we got for that area in 149th Street and the overwhelming feedback that city council got uh, when they were discussing it in, in council meeting was that uh, the stakeholders and, and residents of that area um, did not appreciate the fact that they um, might have this freeway-style underpass in their community, uh, and they were really wanted to stick with the uh, the same thing we did, which was the vision for the for the um, for the corridor of just being this um, very connected, integrated into the neighborhood um, um, city-building type corridor. So, so that was a big challenge that we had, but um, eventually resulted in 149th Street um, kind of wanting to stay as as per the plan and follow the sui. Uh, pathway
0: (laughs) yeah oh that's really cool it's it's uh it's nice to have an insider perspective for sure um but i will i will say like just just getting hearing hearing what it was like to go through the process and you know it sounds like you know 178th street like maybe you would have preferred something at grade but then like really contextualizing it and saying okay well we're above grade here already because i think that'll be from like basically the misericordia hospital all the way to the far side of the mall and it's like, well, there's already a mall there, so it's a bit different in terms of community integration. Whereas 149th Street was really, really, really centralized community uh, bisection there. So,
4: yeah, so exactly. Awesome. So we really did like think about those very different contexts of the area. Um, one of them is a bit more suburban, has a has a you know a huge mall development, lots of parking lots. Um, and not to say that those communities aren't aren't also valuing those pedestrian connections and, and, and those communities really gave us a lot of feedback about the pedestrian connections in that area as well and had us really um, do a lot of things to try to improve those, like um, create a continuous SUP all the way down 87th Avenue, past the mall, as well as fix um, fix up some of the, or improve, I guess I should say, some of the pedestrian connections. Um, as you go walk down 87th Avenue along the West Edmonton Mall, because there's some areas where you, you're crossing, you know, many many access roads into the mall all at once, and you, and it starts to become a little bit, um, you don't feel that safe. So, so we did actually focus a lot there too. But it is a completely different context to 149th Street and Stony Plain Road, where really there's a there's a great deal of development potential um, for kind of transit-oriented development and bringing in new businesses and having the LRT really be a catalyst catalyst for that community so um, yeah it was seen as quite a it would be quite a big deal there to just um, really prioritize traffic and and deprioritize, I guess the the um, pedestrian connectivity and the and the integration of that neighborhood uh, because that would I think dramatically remove away uh, remove some of that transit-oriented development potential for that area which is yeah as you point out a very urban um, uh, center i guess already in a very kind of residential community too
0: to hear more of this conversation with dialogue follow our social media or visit joinmade.org special thanks on this episode to jordan Ast for music mixing and mastering the rest of the team includes Inkit gongle caitlin schultz stephanie pollock and me cody johnston madecast is produced in edmonton on treaty six territory if this conversation intrigued you, head over to your favorite podcast app and show us some love. If you want to learn more about MAID, who we are, what we're up to, and how you can help us out, head over to joinmade.org.